Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we bust the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding and beyond. Today, I guess you'd say that we're mostly sticking to breastfeeding, but we're going a little bit beyond as we're going to be talking about donor milk banking. And I am here today with Kim Updegrove. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marie. It's great to be back. Some of you will remember that Kim has come on before. She has been the director of the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin, Texas, for probably more years than she wants to admit. And also, I know that Kim also is a certified nurse midwife, and she has been in the breastfeeding business for many, many years and has been a strong advocate. Uh, Kim, We've had a couple of shows on uh, milk banking, most notably uh, actually from a couple of the milk bank directors in Europe. So I want to talk about the United States specifically and more specifically about the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. I presume you live in the greater Austin, Texas area, but tell us a little bit about the milk bank specifically there and also, Kim, remind me, are you still the president of the Humbana? I am no longer the president of the Human Milk Banking Association of North America. So that's the umbrella organization that oversees all of nonprofit milk banking in the North American continent, so U.S. and Canada. I remain, though, so I did my my president stint and I'm happy to pass that on. I remain the chair of the standards committee. So previously named the guidelines committee, that is the committee of Himbana that's charged with creating the standards for all of the milk banks to follow so that there is a safe, high quality product uh, provided to the babies in need. Which is just one more reason why I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, for those of you who didn't catch it, Kim and I both said it, but Humbana, H-M-B-A-N-A, is the Human Milk Banking Association of North America. And it is my understanding that other um, regulatory bodies exist throughout the world. They don't necessarily call themselves uh, a milk banking association, but that's basically what they are. Uh, so while we are in the U.S. and Humbana is the U.S. and Canada's organization, um, it's not it's not necessarily going to be called exactly that throughout the world. So tell us a little bit about the milk bank in Austin. So our birth story is is really something that that touches my heart and and speaks to a lot of people. We were started back in 1999. Uh, by two local neonatologists, Dr. George Sharp and Dr. Sunny Rivera. They were working in two different hospital systems, and Dr. Rivera 
uh, admitted two babies to his NICU in May of 1998. They were 24-week infants. So a normal pregnancy, you know, is 40 weeks. And so at 24 weeks, that's pretty early. Um, that was 24 weeks fragile. in 1998, right? That's right. 24 yeah, yeah. weeks in 1998. So That's pretty amazing. Way because back then. Excuse me. 24 weeks now is different than it was some 30 years ago. Yeah. That's right. So back in 1998, a lot of hospital systems wouldn't have even attempted to intervene with those 24-weekers. They might have been... Uh, allowed to just pass very easily. But here in Austin, we we have some very progressive hospitals. Uh, Dr. Rivera was the medical uh, director in the NICU in the St. David's Medical Center, uh, which is one of those. And he admitted these two babies. And he did what every neonatologist would have done at that time. He spoke with the mothers and he said, if you had had full-term healthy infants in the community, your decision to breastfeed would have been your decision. And we'd like that decision to, to be yes under most circumstances, but, but it is your decision. In the NICU, when you have babies born that early, it is imperative that you provide your milk for those babies. That is the primary factor in helping them to survive, especially that early premature time span. So both mothers got that speech and both agreed that they wanted to provide their breast milk for their babies, a little boy and little girl, and they were given lactation support and uh, pumps to express their milk. Um, Even back in 1998, we had pumps. They weren't quite as good as what we have today, but but they were there. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. They existed. And so both mothers were initially successful. And that's what we see in the NICU, that um, we can help mothers to produce some milk and express that milk and provide it to their infants. But within about a week, the mother of the little boy was not able to continue her supply. Her supply dried and there are lots of reasons why the NICU experience um, interrupts the breastfeeding success story. So the mother of the little girl had plenty of milk, plenty for her tiny little baby who weighed just over one pound and enough to spare. So the two mothers approached Dr. Rivera and asked if, the one mom could provide for both babies. It's done in the community all the time. It's known as informal sharing or community sharing. And and they thought that this would be a solution. And Dr. Rivera, wisely reflecting science, said no. The, The risks of not feeding human milk to a very low birth weight infant, so to a tiny infant that fits in the palm of your hand. The risks are enormous because they don't have functioning immune systems. And so if you give them a body fluid from a a person not biologically related, there are risks because body fluids carry bacteria and viruses, all the things that we carry in all of our fluids are transferred via the milk. 
So he said no. He said that despite all of their conversations about the importance of human milk in the avoidance, especially of necrotizing enterocolitis, an inflammatory condition that affects preterm infants primarily when they are exposed to non-human milk feedings. He said that they would be very careful, but that the only substitute available at the time was a commercialized formula made for preterm babies. It's uh, made from cow's milk, and they would provide that to her son. And so they did. And after about five months in the NICU, the little girl was discharged home to her parents, so healthy and lovely, and she's 21 and is a great student. And I last talked to her a year ago fall when she was a a student abroad in Italy and the little boy didn't survive. He lived for five months. He got next several times and, uh, and eventually succumbed to the disease. At that point, Dr. Rivera called his buddy, Dr. Sharp and, and asked if, if it wasn't time to eradicate neck, if it wasn't time to do something to decrease the rate of neck and the high mortality rate associated with it. And they agreed that the answer has been known and what they needed to do was to open a milk bank in Austin and to position it very carefully as a nonprofit community-based provider of pasteurized donor human milk. Nonprofit and community based, so that the milk bank doesn't answer to one hospital system and not to another. Oh, uh-huh. And so that the milk bank could serve anybody in need and not feel constrained by insurance or citizenship or belief system or, or any of the other constraints we put in place. So they opened in 1999, and Dr. Sharp was, was adamant about collecting statistics. He said, look, if we're going to do this as the fifth in the nation at the time, we're going to make sure that it makes a difference, and we're going to be able to prove that difference or prove that it didn't make a difference and so do something else. So Kim, he had to stati- uh, what, yes. what year was this now when he started was- collecting the... 1999. So those those early babies were born in 1998 that had such an impact on Dr. Rivera. And so they spent a year planning, but they opened in May of 1999. And they processed milk and they dispensed it to their two hospital systems. They dispensed 10,000 ounces within that first calendar year. And Dr. George Sharp had kept the statistics of very early babies who experienced necrotizing enterocolitis. And he showed that prior to their opening, the rate was about 9%. Now, 9% of the tiniest babies getting neck with a 60% fatality rate, that meant that there were a lot of heartbroken families. Sure. So after that, 10,000 ounces mm-hmm. of and the NICUs were using human milk only feedings for these tiny babies, the rate dropped from 9% to 1%. They proved it. Wow. So they decided then and there that they would expand how many hospitals they could serve, 
how many different communities they would provide milk to, and they they expanded the goals for the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin to include advocacy for breastfeeding because breast milk is best for these babies. They agreed that they would be leaders in the field of safety protocols, uh, filling in gaps for research, and providing safe donor human milk. Kim, I am dying to ask you this. I had all I could do to shut my mouth here because I have recently gotten a client. She has a level four NICU. She is sending I believe, 18 nurses to my online comprehensive lactation course. Nice. And here's here's where you come in. When I talked to the director, she kind of said something about, uh, well, it had to be mother's milk, but donor milk was not what prevented neck. And I said, whoa, 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 we, we need to talk. <laughs> Because I am fairly confident and, you know, I don't usually want to contradict a client or a potential client, but I said, I am very sure that you are mistaken about that. And so that night I ran a quick literature search and I was able to come up with some 20 or so peer-reviewed high-quality evidence showing that, in fact, it's not just mother's milk, meaning the mother herself, but also the donor milk that, in fact, does prevent neck. And that story that you gave uh, as pertaining to Austin tells me that, in fact, I was totally on track. and And I didn't go back that far, Kim. I just went back the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Yes. And, you know, the, the research literature has been growing because that's, that's been a concern. You know, Marie, we have to admit that, that mom's own milk and donor human milk are two different things. Yep. We're mammals, right? We're, we're a species that is meant to feed our babies our own milk. And when we do that, it is made specifically for them. It has the nutrients they need. In, in the milk are also the immune products and the growth enzymes. Those are all really important for these yeah. infants. Yes. When it's donor human milk, it's milk provided by, by other mothers. And that milk goes through some processing steps, which we can talk about, and then has to meet specific criteria in order to be dispensed. It's a breast milk substitute. It is, of course, species-specific. It is still human milk. Nothing's added to it. Nothing is subtracted, deliberately subtracted. But because of the processing, it has some compromises. And so it leads people who don't know better to say that, well, then it certainly couldn't do what mom's own milk does. But the studies show that mom's own milk and donor human milk are both effective in reducing the rate of necrotizing enterocolitis. Neither one has eliminated neck because to do that, we just have to stop having preterm babies. And we haven't figured out how to make that happen. Too bad, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and that, I I think, Kim, what you're talking about with this misconception is so important because I said to the client, 
I suspect that what you're thinking about here is that no processed milk and donor milk from a donor human milk bank is indeed processed. That is never going to be as good as fresh milk. However, uh, it's always better than formula. Right. So that is how I explained it to her. And I'm glad for your backup here because I will admit I... I just usually don't want to step out of my lane. And, you know, I know a lot about breastfeeding. I know a very small, teeny-weeny bit about donor human milk bank. But I was I was pretty sure that I was on the right track. Kim, I want to talk about donors. Okay. Uh, I know that we've talked about this before, but tell me a little bit about what you've got to be in order or do in order to be a donor. How complicated is it? So it isn't very complicated, but it is time sensitive. Mm. If you want to donate extra milk to a milk bank, you need to have given birth within the last year. You need to have expressed and stored that milk in your freezer for no more than eight months because the milk is changing over time. And you need to meet the screening criteria that evaluate your lifestyle and your medical history to verify that you are not at risk for transmitting something that might be dangerous for a very fragile baby, a baby born too early, too small, or too sick. So in order to prove that, you have an interview, both a verbal and a written interview. You give permission for the milk bank to reach your pediatrician and your provider of prenatal care, so your obstetrician or your certified nurse midwife. And we reach out and get a verification of your health status, including your prenatal blood work. And then we get blood work during the time of application to be a milk donor. Blood work that tests for HIV, HTLV, syphilis, and hepatitis B and C. And all of those things must be negative in order to be approved as a donor. Yeah, and on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about COVID, which I know that everybody has got on their minds, but you're telling me HIV, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, somebody asked me about this just a bit ago, and I said, to my knowledge, there has never been one drop of milk dispensed from a human milk bank in, uh, a human milk bank in, in North America that has been HIV contaminated. Am I correct? You are correct. Okay, and I know that you've been in the milk banking business long enough to know, but I got that from, um, I think, Dr. Ruth Lawrence ages ago, and I've followed it ever since. But I I just think that people that worry about HIV need to worry about something else because that has, while I would suppose that in theory it might possibly be possible, it seems to me that it has never happened and the likelihood would be highly, highly unlikely. Now, Before we come back, I would just like to tell you that if you are a hospital and you want to send several of your nurses to my course, either live or online, please call me at 703-787-9894 or drop me a note on my Facebook page or on my website. That would be mariebiancuso.com. I'll spell it for you. Sorry, but it's the only name I I can give you. (laughs) 
It's M-A-R-I-E-B-I-A-N-C-U-Z-Z-O.com. I've got several blog posts on my website that you'll want to uh, learn about if you're interested specifically in uh, uh, donor milk. But if you're interested in the course, there's also a page there that will tell you about my course. You can send us an email, info at mariebiancuso.com. We would love to get it so that everybody can be an advocate for breastfeeding and human milk. And to that end, I have educated more than 25% of the IBCLCs in the United States. I have helped them to get their credential and to maintain it. And I'm pretty sure I can help you to pass the IBLCE exam. Hey, folks, do not go away. I will be right back with Kim Uptogrove, and we're going to talk about COVID and other issues. Stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Born to be Breastfed. I'm here today with my guest, Kim Updegrove. Kim is a certified nurse midwife. She is the director of the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin, Texas. And Kim just told me over the break that she has been doing that job since 2002. So trust me, this woman is a mountain of knowledge, has a lot of experience and a ton of stuff to share with us. So I am going to ask, we, we focus today on the, the donor aspect, and when Kim comes back, we're going to focus more on the recipient aspect, that is the baby aspect. Kim, I know that there are a bunch of myths floating around. One of the aims of this show is to bust the myths and clarify the facts. You've already helped us to look at a couple of the myths. The HIV one is a big one, but also, please... Talk to us, I hear this a lot, the milk bank selling milk. The milk bank does not sell milk. Can you clear us up on that and also some other myths that are floating around? I like that question, Marie, um, because 
there, there is a very strong myth out there that uh, you shouldn't donate to a milk bank because they'll just sell the milk and make money off of you. Nothing could be further from the truth. So the milk bank accepts donated milk and the donated milk costs the milk bank money in the screening of the donors and then in the processing of the milk, the testing of the milk to verify that it can be dispensed and then the actual dispensing. So there are uh, expenses associated with making milk safe for our tiny recipients. We don't sell the milk, but we charge a processing fee. We charge the cost of making the milk safe to the hospitals that order the milk. Here's the catch. We charge the hospitals that processing fee because the hospitals are then charging the insurance companies and getting paid for those patients. Right. But, right. But then we have this category of babies in need recipients who were previously at the hospital getting donor human milk, and they either failed their formula trial before going home, or they're not eligible for a formula trial. They're too unstable to switch over from human milk to formula, so they remain on donor human milk when they go home. Now, the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin is an advocate for insurance reform, and we've been successful in getting legislation passed that mandates Medicaid coverage for babies who need donor human milk in the home. But that's just one insurance carrier. Yeah. TRICARE, the oh, carrier yeah. that covers rights so or our yep. military, military, both active and yep. retired, they're covered by TRICARE. And TRICARE started to cover donor human milk after years of advocating for this. They started about 18 months ago. So they're also covering it. But many of the private insurers don't cover it. And as you know, we don't have universal insurance coverage in this country. And so there are many people without insurance at all. The founders of the milk bank were not only brilliant, they're enormously compassionate. And so they said from day one, we're gonna have a charitable care program, a philanthropically provided program that says that if you have a medical need for human milk, you have a prescription and a letter of medical necessity, then it doesn't matter if you have insurance or not or financial resources or not, we're going to provide donor human milk to you. And if you're in the hospital, the hospital will pay the processing fees. If you're out of the hospital and medically needy, we cover the cost of the milk. You just get to receive it. So this milk bank, I am particularly proud of being here because we have never in 21 years said no to a baby in need of human Uh, milk. We always provide it. Fantastic. All right. So, and by the way, for those of you who are in the military, I wrote a blog post on the TRICARE probably in the 18 months ago neighborhood. And you can check that out on my website at mariebiancuso.com. So we won't go into that today. Kim, tell us about some other myths. So I think we've established it's not a, a fee. It is a pro, it, it's a, it's a processing fee. It's not that they are selling the milk, but what about some other myths that are floating around out there about uh, donor human milk? 
So there's another one that I hear a lot. Um, You know, I told our birth story and I said, you know, we were created to provide human milk to all babies who are born too early, too sick, uh, or too small. And so we prioritize the very medically unstable baby. But today, and for the past year at least, we have been able, thanks to the compassionate donations of human milk and the compassionate uh, support uh, from a financial perspective, we've been able to expand our scope so that we now have milk available to hospital well baby units. That means that if you were to go to the hospital and have your your beautiful full-term or near-full-term infant, and that infant is with you for your 24-hour stay, or you've had a C-section and it's a little longer stay, but you have the baby because the baby doesn't need the neonatal intensive care unit, you can still get donor human milk. In fact, we were talking during the break about an old practice of hospitals to send parents home with their newborns with a couple of bottles of formula. Oh, right, right. We now understand how dangerous that is and how much it undermines the successful achievement of a woman's breastfeeding goals. So instead of supplementing with formula, well baby units have started supplementing with donor human milk. Now, supplementing in the hospital in that first 24 hours becomes necessary if the baby experiences a mild hypoglycemia or low blood sugar or a mild hyperbilirubinemia, you know, that jaundice, that yellowing of the skin. It used to be that we would just give the baby a formula uh, feeding while the mother's milk was not yet available because the baby just needed some uh, sustenance, some volume. So now we give donor human milk and therefore the mother gets the message that her milk is absolutely best for the baby, that we're not going to compromise the baby's feedings by giving it any other thing other than human milk. And if she continues to have a delay in her available milk supply by the time she's ready for discharge, she can actually get milk from a milk bank without a prescription, up to 40 ounces of it, just to carry her through what we call a bridge period. There are lots of reasons for delay in milk supply, and um, this helps them. I'm hearing you say that the myth is that you must have a prescription in all circumstances. The myth is that your baby does not have to be hanging between life and death in order to get milk from a donor human milk bank. Are those the two main myths there? That's right. That means that the, the dream that every healthy or that every human infant receives human milk only, we're getting closer and closer to that vision. Yes. Yes. What a vision. Oh, that is fantastic. All right. So can you just tell me, because I want to go to the COVID, but can you just tell me quick, yes or no, do you have enough milk or do your other milk banks have enough milk? There's never enough milk, Marie, so no. (laughs) 
We have enough for the highly prioritized medically fragile infants. But if we want to continue taking care of the babies who are mildly compromised with hypoglycemia or hyperbilirubinemia, we need more milk donors. We need people to agree that while informal sharing happens quite frequently, the priority should be going through the screening and becoming an approved milk donor to an established nonprofit milk bank so that babies who are in need can receive that milk. Kim, quick, quick, how, what's their first step? Can they call you, go on their webs- on your website? What do they do in order? You know, I, I guess I would ask listeners, you don't even have to do it. I would just it, help you to explore it. Just ask the question, how do they start that process of thinking about whether or not they might be a donor? It's very simple. Everybody has a, a cell phone. Everybody's on it all the time. Go to milkbank.org, our website, M-I-L-K-B-A-N-K.org, and land on the page, Donate Milk. You'll see a very quick form that can be filled out on your cell phone um, with just a couple of data points that lead my donor screeners to call you and walk through the phone interview as the first step. So reach out to us and we'll reach back to you and you will be a life-saving milk donor. Amen to that. Uh, Kim, how has the Mother's Milk Banking Association uh, been affected by the COVID-19 and vice versa? COVID-19. Wow. What a difficult time it is to be living through a pandemic. Oh, yeah. So um, the first thing to know is that unlike many businesses, milk banks don't get to close. We're essential missions. So we have people who need to come to work every day to process and make the milk safe, come to work to screen the milk donors and to meet donors dropping off their milk. Come to work to receive the FedEx and UPS uh, boxes of milk coming in, right? So we're here. So bump off that myth that says that milk banks surely are closed or everybody's working remote. No one's working remotely and we're, we're here for you. And you can donate from anywhere across the United States. But... COVID-19 affects not only our individual physical health, creates some emotional health issues as well, some fears, some very legitimate fears. When you tell people that you need to socially distance and you need to only leave your home if you have to leave your home, but then you tell them if they want to be a milk donor, they have to go to a lab to have their blood drawn. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. Right? And they have to either ship their milk, and our carriers will come to your house to pick it up, but you have to ship your milk here or drop it off at the milk bank or one of the 55 depots we have around the country. Then suddenly you're asking people to do some things that from a public health perspective doesn't make a lot of sense. So... We can't drop the blood work requirement, right? We've already talked about HIV being one of the 
blood tests that is mandated, but there are four others as well. So what we did was negotiate with the labs that draw the blood of our donor applicants and get their approval to have our donor applicants get first day appointments, meaning that the first hour is dedicated to our milk donors. They're not sitting in a waiting room. They're sitting in their car until they're called into the lab and they're not meeting sick people. If anything, they're looking at the other cars filled with moms who are waiting to get their blood work done as well. So Talk the, about think out of the box here, Kim. Good for yeah. you. Wow. Yeah, we, we had some fun kind of creatively thinking through this. You know, none of us have been through a pandemic. I think our last one was 1918, so that was a little bit uh, before my time. Um, but then we also created a program called Porch Angels. We had all these volunteers who like to come into the milk bank and um, help us do things administratively or in the milk processing labs, and we couldn't allow them to come in anymore. I need to keep the staff safe in terms of their exposure so that they could continue our work. So Porch Angels became a, a way of addressing donor fears and transporting milk by the volunteers from the donors' homes to the depots or the milk bank itself. The volunteers arrange to pick up the milk at a certain time frame. The approved donor puts the frozen milk out on her porch at that right time and watches the porch angel from the safety of her house pick up the milk, and the porch angel drops the milk off at the milk bank or a collection site. Safe. The mom doesn't have to leave her house. It's really been lovely. Most definitely. So it it enabled us to continue our work with the volunteers and support the donors as well. A bigger fear, Marie, um, that happened back in April. So the pandemic was named on March 5th of 2020. And by April some rather irresponsible individuals had created a myth that mother's milk could transfer COVID-19 in the milk from the mother to the baby and that donor human milk could transfer COVID-19 not only through the milk, but through the container itself that became contaminated by the milk bank. Now, you have to know when when there's any new virus out there, even, a, you know, we've looked at coronaviruses for a long time. We had SARS and MERS and we knew a lot about those, but not about COVID-19. So when these myths started to come out, what the milk banks across the North American continent saw was a decline in the use of donor human milk in the hospitals. A decline means that there's an increase in risk of neck to the very low birth weight infants in the neonatal intensive care units. So we had more babies potentially get sick and not survive because of this myth. So back in April, the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin uh, contracted with some researchers in California 
we walked through the protocols they'd need to follow in order to prove that human milk, both moms and donor, is safe. And so we worked with researchers to acquire samples of milk from moms who were diagnosed with COVID-19. And those moms ranged in symptoms from, from being asymptomatic, no, no symptoms whatsoever, all the way to being on heart-lung bypass equipment. Their milk samples were sent off to the lab and examined for presence of COVID-19. And that data, which is already published in the Journal of American Medicine, shows that the virus cannot be transmitted via human milk expressed by those COVID-19 positive mums. Further, we worked through a protocol so that they took human milk, inoculated it with live virus, and then walked that milk through the pasteurization process that milk banks follow to make the milk safe, uh-huh. verifying that this coronavirus, just like past coronaviruses, is heat sensitive. That means it's really wimpy. It doesn't like to be heated. And so when we heat the milk to 62.5 degrees Celsius for 30 minutes, that virus is inactivated within the first couple of minutes. So no risk. So, Kim, let me understand then. First of all, you're not seeing it pass through the milk from from the mother, right? Correct. Yes. And even if you do put the virus into the, uh, uh, I've seen these things, but I don't know. Uh, when you put it into the, the, the storage container for the expressed milk. Yes, thank you. Then, then when you pasteurize it at 62.5 degrees Celsius for 30 minutes, which is the definition of holder pasteurization, it kills the virus no matter what, right? That's correct, right. So it beats the argument that mom is dangerous to her infant via her milk, and it beats the argument that if she's expressing her milk and isn't transferring it in the milk but can breathe over the milk, have some air droplets contaminate the milk and then have it not be safe, the pasteurization process destroys it. So none of those cases are true. And of course, the Centers for Disease Control has made it crystal clear that food containers are not a source of COVID-19. So that was just a ridiculous myth from the get-go. Well, you know, at first, Kim, I think we were just all so frightened. I remember feeling like I didn't know if it was okay to touch a, you know, a can of beans or something because right. we right. just didn't know. It's, you know, it, it's terrifying and it, and it remains terrifying, right? 210,000 people roughly have lost their lives and um, so many people have gotten sick and will face both short-term and long-term effects of that. So it is terrifying. But, you know, my point is that um, myths have the ability to harm yeah. humans. And so each, as, as often as it can be, each should be examined scientifically to prove whether it's, it has merit or, or whether it's just a myth and it needs to be squashed. And so we have 
been able to prove that some of these myths were just not true at all. We've had to do some some really creative things within the milk bank in order to not only make sure that we still have a safe milk supply coming in, getting processed and dispensing, but that our staff stay safe. So no longer do our local milk donors and local milk recipients come into the milk bank to drop off or get their milk. We meet them in the parking lot. It's a contactless exchange of milk. And because our staff need to be safe, we have a commitment to each other to be each other's social pod. Uh, so no exposures outside of here. And that meant that suddenly we had to say, what about all of us who have little children? What are we going to do to meet the childcare needs? Right. We um, very creatively took a, a room that would be used to lecture medical and nursing and dietetic students, and we changed it over into a childcare room and hired a... A child care educator who found herself out of work to care for up to eight of the staff's children at one time, ranging in age from infancy through the age of eight. And uh, we had children here for about six months. And it was wonderful and noisy and heartwarming and chaotic. It was just absolutely fabulous. And that way... Our staff didn't have the exposure through their own children. Yes. A risk here. Oh, wow. What a lot to deal with. This has been a very informative interview, Kim. I can't thank you enough and most definitely will be looking forward to having you back. Thanks for your uh, comment about the myths. I've been doing this show for about seven years now, just busting the myths, and you sure took care of a, a lot of them today. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Kim Updegrove, and also... Uh, thank you for listening. I will be back next week, and we will also be here to talk to Kim again. In the meanwhile, remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.